know, Jesus said, Jesus said this when he was talking to his disciples. He gave us what was considered to be the greatest commandment. That if you follow this commandment, okay, then you won't have to worry about all the other commandments, all right? If you follow this one commandment, that one commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Okay, so he gives us four areas that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with. And one of those particular areas is to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. That word mind that we get from the Greek language is a word that also could be translated into the word intellect. To love the Lord your God with all of your intellect. And, and while I know that today I'm talking to a bunch of people that probably are already convinced, I also know this that there's a lot of you here today that you live and work in circles where people aren't already convinced. And because you, you have a sphere of people around you, and you have influence and connection and relationships with people that are, that are not convinced, and sometimes it's not good enough for you to say, well, I just believe it because God's word says it's true. Or I just believe it because I was raised in that culture. I was raised, or, or I just believe it because God has made himself known to me in a personal level. And all of that stuff is great, and I'm not trying to knock you because there's a lot of us in here that we, that's okay for us to have that mindset, to have the, that simple just, you know, but there's a lot of Thomases out there, Right? And Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples, and Jesus pulled him in on purpose. There's a lot of people out there that, and, and of course, Jesus addressed his unbelief and his saying, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. And certainly we can't just be like, voila, here's God, you know, this kind of thing. But what we can do is we can appeal to the intellect, and we can answer some of the hard questions that exist out there in, in our world today. And so today I want to appeal to the intellect and talk about three Four things in particular as it relates to the existence of God and how, how can you argue, how can you argue, not, and maybe not argue, but apologetically present God's existence in a manner that can be understood by everyday people. All right, when you deal with people and they begin to ask questions, because understand us as people, as individuals, we are, we are spiritual beings. And so we kind of have this spiritual struggle. Every person out there has a spiritual struggle. This idea of, does God exist? Does he not exist? And I don't believe he does, and I believe he does. And, and all of this back and forth, or I don't really know. And, and so there's a lot of questions that exist out there in this world. And how can you present and answer things to people that have questions? All right. I, I, some of these things, uh, I was even explaining this at, at kids camp two weeks ago. At the opportunity, we had some, some young men that had joined our church group that went that don't go to our church. And some of them probably may, may not go to church at all. And... Uh, and I had the opportunity to sit down with them for a long time, and they were asking questions about, you know, all kinds of stuff as it relates to God. And we were able to go over some of this. Well, imagine if, you know, um, you know, I was at a place where I didn't know how to answer their questions. But I'm just one person, all right? And you say, well, you know, you're the pastor. You're supposed to know all that stuff. Well, I would... I would say that you're supposed to know all this stuff too. You're the believer. 
And the Bible says that you are to be able to give an answer to the hope that is in you to anyone that asks. That you're supposed to be able to answer some of the hard questions that people have about faith. That you can't say, well, I'm going to leave that up to the intellectuals. I'm going to leave that up to the pastors or the teachers. or I'm going to leave it up to them. No, you, you can have this knowledge as well. All right? And so when we're talking about the existence of God, though, look, we live, our, our culture that we live in today is an anti-God culture. You got to understand that we're, we, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being, you know, a Christian society, and certainly there were elements of that uh, uh, that were a part of the birthing of America and, and, and the process. But where we are today, where we are in 2017, okay, it is an anti God culture. Now, sure, there are fragments that still exist in our society today, but you look in the public square as a whole, okay, it, is, it has been a driving force in our society to remove God from every facet of the existence in our society. All right? They take them from the schools, from the public arena, all of these different areas, and we see this as happening in our world. And, and more and more people, and in our secular universities, they, you know, they are challenging young people. They are teaching them that God does not exist and all of these kinds of things. And so today, I want us to be able to uh, verbalize the faith that we have by being able to process it so we can understand these things and we can communicate these things in a big way. So there's three, three main arguments for the existence of God. And while there, I would say there may be as many as a dozen arguments for the existence of God, there's three that probably are the strongest. They are the strongest most compelling arguments when you think about a divine creator, somebody that exists in the world, okay, that, that exists and, and how we got into being and where we are today, there's three main arguments. And the first argument is the cosmological argument of the existence of God. The cosmological argument, and this is the cause and effect argument, that because um, there is an effect, there has to be a cause, all right? Now, everybody, for the most part, has to answer this question because there cannot be any, in, an infinite amount of effects without an original first cause. Okay? So from a, a naturalist standpoint, what do they use for their first cause? It's the Big Bang, right? They say that there was a Big Bang that then happened, and that's their first cause because they even recognize the fact that you cannot have an infinite amount of effects that happen without there being an original first cause, okay? So here's, here's the argument, and try to follow along with me, okay? Things exist, and it is possible for those things not to exist. And whatever has the possibility of not existence yet exists has been caused to exist, okay? So things exist, and if things exist, then those things have the possibility of not existing. And if things have the possibility of not existing, then there has to be a cause for why those things exist, okay? This is the cosmolo cosmo cosmological argument of the existence of God. It says right here, then it goes, Something cannot bring itself into existence since it must exist to bring itself into existence, which is illogical, all right? Now, I know, listen, I'm appealing to the intellect side of you, you are, okay? You guys think that I'm talking in circles. I'm not. Follow me, okay? Follow me here and try to wrap your brain about what we're talking about here. 
There cannot be an infinite number of causes to bring something into existence. An infinite regression of causes ultimately has no initial cause, which means that there is no cause of existence. All right? It's the argument here that there has to be an initial cause. There has to be an initial cause. All right? And since the universe exists, it must have a cause. Therefore, therefore, there must be an uncaused cause of all things. All right? And the uncaused cause must be God. Okay? Now, the naturalist would say, well, what caused God? All right? So if you're going to tell me that God has always been there, then what caused God? If the universe can't always be there, then what caused God? All right? Well, from a Christian perspective, okay, this is where we understand the fact that God cannot be God if he was created or if there was something that caused him to be in existence. Okay? If there was something that created God, then that thing that created God would be God. Okay? All right? Or if there were some other thing that caused God to come into existence, then God really wouldn't be God in the way that we understand that God is. That he is everlasting, that he has no beginning and he has no end. Okay? That he is, you know, um, omnipotent, omniscient. Okay? Uh, all of these things, all of these attributes that we bring to God, if God has a beginning, then he cannot be God. All right? So we understand this thing that because things exist, Okay? Because they exist, there has to be a cause. Because things that exist cannot bring themselves into existence without already being in existence. All right? So man cannot build things when they're not, they not in existence in the first place. It's this argument that there has to be a cause from the beginning. And the reason why that there is a, has to be a cause from the beginning is that God has to be the uncaused cause. That he has to be the one that spoke everything and brought everything into existence from the beginning. Thomas Aquinas in 1224 and 1274, uh, he said this. He had a version of the cosmological argument called the argument of motion. He stated that things in motion could not have brought themselves into motion but must, but must be caused to move. Therefore, uh, there cannot be an infinite regression of movers, and therefore there must be an unmoved mover, and the unmoved mover is God. It's the same argument Okay, there cannot be an infinite number of, of, of causes to just, just go on and on and on and on. Even the naturalists admit that that's just not possible. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us from the very first verse that God created the universe, that he was the uncaused cause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. In 1 Chronicles 16, 26, it says the Lord made the heavens. In 2 Chronicles 2, uh, 2, 6, we know, listen, that God is not himself a physical part of the universe. All right, He's not a physical part of the universe the way that we are a physical part of the universe. And in 2 Chronicles 2, 6, it states the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. All of the heavens combined together cannot contain the presence of the almighty God. And in Genesis 21, 33, it says the Lord is the everlasting God, that he is eternal, that he is infinite, that his power 
rules forever in Psalms 66, 7, that his power rules forever. And so throughout the scripture, the Bible describes this God that he doesn't have to have a first cause because that is exactly and precisely what's make, what makes him God in the first place. And so the Bible very clearly teaches us that God is the uncaused first cause who created the universe by willing it into existence, by speaking it into existence. The second argument that we find for the existence of God, main argument, is the teleological argument. The teleological argument. And this is the argument of purpose and design. And here's the five-step process of this argument. Human artifacts are products of intelligent design. The universe resembles human artifacts. Therefore, the universe is a product of intelligent design. But the universe is complex and gigantic in comparison to human artifacts. Therefore, there probably is a powerful and vastly intelligent designer who created the universe. That's the teleological argument, that it's purpose and design. Um, there's several people, a guy by the name of William Paley uh, that uh, lived back in the 1700s. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, even talks about this in his book called Mere Christianity, and it's the watchmaker um, uh, idea. And the idea comes from this. It's, uh, it's this idea that if you were walking through the woods in the middle of nowhere, and you were just walking through the woods, minding your own business, and you come across and you kick a watch with your foot, and you reach down and you grab that watch and you pick it up, okay, what are the assumptions that you're going to make about that watch? I'm not talking about things that you think like when you pick, I'm talking about the assumptions that you already know. When you look at it, you see that it has a design. You see that it is uh, intrinsic, that there are many different parts made within the part, okay, to make this one whole part to work for a specific function and for a specific purpose. And so the natural thought that you have in your mind is that somebody made this watch. Somebody made the watch. Okay? So why is it then you can walk through the woods, okay, minding your own business, and strike your foot upon a rock and think that, well, this thing just kind of evolved into being over millions and billions of years ago when that rock is also intrinsic. It has many different chemicals and things that create it to formulate and make it the way it is, and it has a specific purpose and design that has made it the way it is. And if you want to go beyond a rock, think about, for example, the, 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 the naturalists and the evolutionary uh, people. They have no answer for things that, that exist inside the human body like the eyeball. How do all of these parts inside the human eye come together to form and to make it the way it is so that it can see and translate what it is seeing back to the brain so you know exactly what you're seeing in moments of time? How can all of those parts somehow have been brought together without there being some kind of intelligent designer behind it that created it and fashioned it into being? The teleological argument says okay, that there is a purpose and that there is design for the universe. That the universe that we see is intrinsic and it is unique. And there, there are things that exist in our world today that we don't even have the capabilities of replicating. We can't do it. 
we can't replicate the, the things that exist in our world today, but somehow we want to say that all of these things happened over the course of billions of years by chance. Or we could look and say that there is a design. Think about the ecosystem and the way that, um, that nature works and the water that falls and evaporates and goes back up and comes back down in the cycle of life and how everything takes care of itself and everything works. That there's, it's, it's unique. It's intelligent. And if there's intelligence behind nature, then there has to be an intelligent designer and that's where we get the assumption that there has to be a God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Listen, that just looking in the natural world, just looking in the nature, you can see intelligent design and you can see that there was a God who had to have been there to exist and to, to do all of these things. Even uh, Einstein and several famous scientists, while they never really proclaimed to be uh, um, you know, Christians or any of those kinds of things, they admitted along the journey that there had to be intelligence behind the things that they were discovering, the things that were happening in nature. There had to be some kind of intelligent influence behind what happened. They never really were able to, to grasp a hold of the crisp Christian message, but they admitted the fact that all throughout nature is a sign that there's a, there's a designer that was a part of the process. The third thing, that, the third argument that we see is the moral argument. The moral argument, the argument of morals, and it's probably one of the hardest arguments for the uh, the atheists, the naturalists, the evolutionary people to, uh, to argue against. It's the moral argument. And this moral argument goes like this. For an objective moral standard to exist, God must exist. An objective moral standard does exist, therefore God exists. Right? You cannot have morality come from an amoral first cause. Okay? How do you explain morality in man from an amoral first cause. When we're talking about an amoral first cause, we're talking about the Big Bang. The Big Bang is an a, it's, it's void of morality, okay? It is, it is nature reacting. How do you go from something that is amoral, okay, to establish something inside of all of us, okay, this idea of what is right and what is wrong, okay? How do you do that? Okay? And this is one of the greatest things because what, what ends up happening, and I ended up talking about this at Richard Dawkins, um, this professor and the, the guy that's a, you know, just a hardcore atheist, anti-God person, what, one of the things he ends up saying, and I, I quoted this several weeks ago when we were talking about some of these issues, I think the issue of suffering in particular, is that he, he ends up stating basically that the atheist has to admit that there's no such thing as good and evil, that those are basically figments of our imagination. 
all right? That there's no such thing as good and there's no such thing as evil. And when somebody does something bad, they are simply just dancing to their own DNA. They're only just being who they have evolved into being over the course of, you know, the billions of years that we've evolved into being. That there's no such thing because for the atheist or for the naturalist to admit that there is such thing as good and evil, then they have to admit that a moral code exists inside of man. And in order to admit that moral code exists inside of man, they have to admit that there's a possibility that God exists. Because morality cannot come from an amoral first cause. You know, when we, when we meet someone who actually live like there's no morality at all, we call this person a sociopath. And we recognize in our society when we, when we, when we, we find people who live like there's no moral code, we, we designate them and we diagnose them as sociopaths. And we recognize that this is a serious defect, a serious defect that they are failing to perceive an important element of reality just, be, just as a blind or a deaf person fails to perceive an important element of physical reality. And we rightly understand that sociopathy is to be far a greater defect than physical blindness and deafness. We don't look at people who are physically blind and deaf and think that they're somehow they are are a major cancer to society, but we find people who live with no moral basis and we diagnose them as sociopath and we put them in solitary confinement because we recognize that something is wrong with them. We recognize that they have a problem and that this problem is greater than a physical defect. It's a moral defect inside of us. So where does that idea come from? Where does that idea come from? Some would say it comes from culture, that culture is the one that teaches us the ideas of wrong, right and wrong. And while there is an element of truth to the fact that cultures do dictate certain rights and certain wrongs within, I think that it is universally accepted that, that it, is, it would be wrong for you to go about mutilating babies. I mean, anybody, I think, in any culture would recognize that that would be something that is wrong and uh, and especially if it came down to mutilating, if somebody says, no, I don't think it's wrong, or there's a culture that doesn't think it's wrong, well, you take those people and take their babies and mutilate them, they'll think it's wrong. Where does this idea of good and evil come from? Um, you know, the Nazi concentration camps have long been commentated on as being places where morality ceased to exist. In the concentration camps where they, they um, you know, brutally treated people, uh, kids, babies, men and women alike, there was no regard to humanity, no regard to humanity. And psychologists who have studied what had happened in those particular days recognized the fact that there was, there was something that happened in those moments. There was something that happened uh, in those times where, um, you know, morality ceased to exist in those moments. Y'all like the strobe light effect we got going on here? <clears throat> you know, sometimes you do the best you can, and it still messes up on you. 
You know, morality also distinguishes humans from animals in a way that is, more, that is uh, way more than just biology can explain. Morality, uh, it, it, it distinguishes, it sets us apart, okay? A trout can eat another trout's young, and this is not evil. But a man who eats his neighbor's daughter would consider to be very evil, Okay? And so morality sets us apart from even the animal world and the animal kingdom shows that we are significantly different, that we do have uh, values and morality, whereas the natural world and nature and uh, the animals and all the things that exist outside of mankind, they don't live under the same rules and the same laws, the same place that we are. Why? Because God created us in his image. He placed his moral law inside of us so that we can know good and evil. We could recognize that. But even beyond these, these, um, even beyond these, these three main arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological, there has to be a first cause, and the teleological, the, the idea that there's a specific design and purpose, and because there's a design, there has to be a designer. And the moral argument that where does morality come from? How can morality exist today if there was an amoral first cause? How can uh, biology evolution explain things like love? How can they explain things like morality and these things that exist? How can, they, how can they explain even the way that we think? How we, we can't even scientifically understand the way that we think and we process information. The mind of man is, is that's why we have a whole study of psychology studies the mind of man because you can't, you can't study it scientifically. It can't be measured where do these things, where, do these, where have these things come from, the soul of man? Where, where have they come from, from a biological first cause? But even greater than all of these, as we find in the person of Jesus, we see, all, see even a greater thing when you look at Christianity, when you look at the message of Christ, and you look at the message of of. Of Christianity, we see something that you see something in Christianity you don't see anywhere else. All right, you see something in the person of Jesus that you don't see anywhere else, and that's three things that Jesus does for us. Three things that Jesus does that nobody else does, and the first thing is is that He is the only one. Jesus is the only one of all of His contemporaries who explained the the human condition that lines up with what we see in the real world. Jesus is the only one who has been able to explain the human condition that matches up with our reality, okay? That he's able to explain these things, that he, he describes your heart and he describes my heart better than anyone else has ever been able to, to, to explain it. You go to Muhammad and Krishna and Buddha or any of these guys and the way that they try to, they, they, they recognize that, that evil exists in the world and somehow just turn a blind eye saying, well, I, you know, and, and, and the, they recognize the human condition and for whatever reason they, they want to excuse it or turn away from it or act like it doesn't exist or, or something like this. Jesus is the only way, the only one of all of his contemporaries that, it, that describes the condition of man that actually lines up with our reality. And he describes our heart 
our hearts as a vertical falling short of a mark. He describes our life as a vertical falling short of a mark where sin has entered us. The Bible goes on to say that the heart of man is desperately wicked who can know it. The heart of man is desperately wicked who can know it. Now, doesn't that line up with the reality that we see in our world today? That the heart of man is desperately wicked. I tell you what, my kids hate this, but I listen to talk radio, and during non-football season, I listen to the political talk radio. <laughs> they love that, okay? But I'm like, whatever, I don't care. You know, let's do it anyways. Um, I'm telling you, every morning I turn on the radio, it seems like every morning I turn on the radio when I'm driving somewhere, I hear about some news report. And I'm talking just locally. I almost, it almost feels like every day somebody gets shot in Birmingham. I'm not kidding. Like, if you actually listen to it and you may not watch the news or something like that, and I know that's crazy to even think about because you may not pay attention to it, but I'm, I'm serious. It seems, almost seems it probably three or four times a week, you know, you know, such and such person got shot down in this area and the police are investigating and all this kind of stuff. And it goes on and on and on. Listen, and you think about uh, the way that our world is today with the events that have happened in our world with, with ISIS and their uh, destructive nature and how they just are careless about life and they're willing to just snuff it out and, and, and actually take credit for it. And, and be boastful and proud of it. And Jesus described man okay, as that our hearts are far from God, that our hearts are wicked, that our hearts are, we're selfish. We're selfish. We want our way. We want our stuff. He described us to a T. And not only does he do that, it lines up with everything we see in our world today, everything that we see. He describes us. You know, when you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, did you know that there was, did you notice that in the Garden of Eden that there was only one law? There's only one law, right? God said, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. Just don't eat off this tree. This just, there was just one law. Do whatever you want to do. Just don't eat off this tree. And he says that in the day that you eat off this tree, okay, that you will, you know, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? But here's the, the, the real way that it should read is that when God said, don't eat off this tree, because when you do, it says that it should say that in the day that you do, you will play God defining what is good and what is evil. You will play God. Because what happens is, is in that moment, Okay, we go from, from fulfilling our purpose in life, in other words, that God created us for communion with him, that our, our, our level and our place was that we would have communion with God, we would be in relationship with him, that he would be God and we would be man and we would be subject and follow because of a choice that we have, because we would choose to love him. And in that moment, in that day, and so when Adam and Eve chose to do what they were told not to do, in essence, on that day, they decided that they wanted to play God and that they wanted to define what was good and what was evil. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. 
And so in our world today now, when you go and you get on an airplane, you will hear instructions like, um, you know, there's no smoking on the airplane, and uh, if you go to the bathrooms, there's going to be a smoke detector. Do not uh, touch, uh, dismantle, disable, uh, you know, destroy any of the smoke detectors. It's against federal law. Well, it's like there's like five things that you cannot do to a smoke detector on a plane. <laughs> you know, um, and you remember you go back to the beginning, there was just one law, one rule. Okay, now you have five things that you can't, well, I guess because there's some way that you could tamper with a smoke detector without destroying it, or you could dismantle it without somehow, I don't know. There's multiple ways why you can, you know, if they said, hey, do not destroy the smoke detectors, you could be like, hey, I was just fidgeting with it. I'm not really sure what happened. It just fell apart in my hands. <laughs> and they're, So now they're like, do not touch. Don't touch. Don't do anything. Don't even look at, <laughs> that's next. Don't look at it. You know, we got cameras in there. We're watching. I'm just kidding. No, can't do that. Um, but now we have, they put all of these rules. You won't do any things. Uh, you know, so what happens is, is when this one law was broken, now we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of laws that exist in our society today. And so when we decide that we are going to do it our way and not God's way, we play God and we define what's good and evil. And you know what? Sometimes we can do that as a believer as well. Well, I know God tells me not to do this, but, I mean, you know, who's it going to hurt, really? I know that this probably isn't the right thing for me to do, but you know what? It's not... It's not that big a deal. I mean, I'm not like murdering somebody, right? Or I'm not like Joe Blow, or I'm not like this person or that person. Uh, and so then what we do is we define our own morality. We play God defining what is good and what is evil. Do the same thing. It's okay for me to lie as long as it's an appropriate situation. It's okay for me to steal as long as I'm hungry and I need bread. Uh, it's okay for me to do whatever I feel like I want to do as long as I'm not hurting somebody else in the process. And then we create our own level of morality. And even in the premise of Christianity and even being a person that goes to church every Sunday that is faithful to the Lord in your ties, that sings worship music and all this kind of stuff, you find yourself living your life where you are playing God because you are deciding what is right and what is wrong. The second thing that Jesus does that nobody else does is his provision for my problem. Jesus' provision for my problem. There is only one place in the world you will find an answer to your problem. Our problem, this problem of sin and rebellion that we have. And no other religion in the world does it come close to giving an answer like Jesus gives. No other religion in the world does. Um, in the, like in the Baha Gita, which is the, the, uh, uh, the scriptures for uh, Hinduism and, and the, the writings about Krishna and all the things that he did and all the things that he said, we see how Krishna talks about how everything that we experience in life is Leela. It's Leela. 
And what Leela is, is this, Leela is, uh, it could be defined as God's cosmic game, or it could be defined as like a play. Like it's just a, it's just a, you know, it's a play that we're all a part of. We're all a part of this play. And he describes in, in, this, in this manuscript, having a conversation with one of his, one of his disciples. And, and this, this disciple of his was really torn because he was being forced to go into war to fight against his brothers, and he was going to have to go kill his brothers. And he's like, I don't, this just doesn't seem right to me. I just don't understand why, or, why are we doing this. Just, and, and Krishna was explaining to him, like, hey, don't worry about it. This is just all the play. And they're eventually they'll, they'll, they'll roll back the curtain and we'll all get along. And everybody will be fine. It's just a, it's just a game. It's just a play that we're a part of. It's not It's not real. What you're experiencing in life and now is not really real. It's, in a way, a figment of your imagination. Krishna talks about the, the uh, Prajapathi, which is called the sacrifice. He talks about this several times throughout the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, but he never goes in to describe what the sacrifice is. What sacrifice is needed for man? He never explains what the sacrifice really means. And in virtually all the religions in the world, there is a point. At some point, there is presented this idea of a need for atonement. In all religions, there's this, at some point within the religion, at some point within the manuscripts and the scriptures, there's this idea that there needs to be atonement, that there needed to be, there needs to be a sacrifice for something that we deal with in our life. But it is only in the Christian faith where we find, where you will find a description of what the atonement looks like. And that is that Jesus provides it, that Jesus goes to the cross, that God's son, okay, that God's son went to the cross. You see, Abraham took his son up to the mountain, and God said, I want you to give me your one and only son. And he went up to the mountain, he took his son, and he bound him, and he put him on an altar. And Abraham was in th- within thrusting the knife upon his son, and, and God stopped him, and he said, no, 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 you don't need to do this, I'll provide. And some thousand years later, God sent his only son, and he sent him to the cross, and this time he did not withhold the knife. And Jesus was brutalized, and he was hurt, and he was whipped, and he took, and he bore the cross and the brunt of all of our pain and our suffering because of our sin. And all throughout the Bible, we see that the Christian message is the only message that gives a description of what the atonement looks like, what the sacrifice was needed for our sins. And the third thing about Jesus is his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection. You know, if Jesus was a charlatan, if he was trying to just manipulate people and fool people, this is what he would have done. Kill me, and I will spiritually rise again. Kill my body, and I will spiritually rise again. Why? Why would you do that? Because you cannot disprove a spiritual resurrection. You cannot prove it, but you also cannot disprove a spiritual resurrection. Because then the disciples would be like, well, he rose again spiritually. Where is he? Well, it's a spirit. 
It's there somewhere. If he was trying to manipulate people and he was trying to fool people and he was trying to somehow create this thing, then from a human perspective where we know our own limitations, okay, that if you were really trying to make your religion last beyond your lifetime, okay, then you would never really say that you're going to bodily rise again because you would kind of know that that's not real possible, and if you don't actually do it, then everything that you've been living for your entire life would be meaningless and just nothing, all right? And so therefore, you would say, you know, if you kill my body, I'm going to spiritually rise again. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And when he was talking about the temple, we know that he was talking about his body, that he would raise his body from the grave. Now, here's the thing about that. I mean, you, you cannot prove um, a spiritual resurrection, but you can prove a bodily resurrection. And I know this is something that we talked about, I think, probably even at Easter time, that, that most theologians and historians alike agree that of all the things that we believe that happened throughout the course of history, the resurrection, we have more information and data to prove that the resurrection actually happened than almost any other historical event. Okay? And, and so it's, it was a real thing that Jesus did. He said that he would bodily rise again, and this statement was a statement that he made where he, in essence, was saying that he's not trying to fake people out. I'm not trying to fool you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm going to do this in bodily form. I'm going to bring my body back, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. You see, Jesus wasn't trying to pull the wool over their eyes. He was trying to open their eyes to show them where their real blindness came from. And so in Jesus, we get a clear depiction of the condition of man's heart that is ver ver uh, verifiable by the reality that we live in. You know, I, I, I was, I've been reading this book and listening to this podcast to this guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias who actually addresses a lot of these issues that we're talking about here today, and I talked about that a couple weeks ago. He has some fabulous books if you want to, because there's really, there's not, we can't cover everything like this on a Sunday morning because there's so much more to the conversation. He describes a meeting that he had with, um, actually two meetings, there were meetings that he had back to back with the leading Shiite Muslim leader uh, in the Middle East. He actually had a meeting with this guy, and this was one of those things where, uh, and, and he addressed some things, but basically, you know, long, long story short, you have to hear kind of his whole testimony, that the second meeting that he had, the first meeting, you know, he addresses the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and God, and, and, but he did it in a respectful way, and this guy listened to him, and the second time, uh, he, he went, they debated, he said for a couple hours, they were, they were going over the resurrection, because the biggest hang-up for uh, the Muslims is the resurrection of Jesus and stuff like this. I mean, they believe in Jesus, but not the Son of God. And so the resurrection actually plays a significant role in all of this. And they, as they spent a couple hours, he said, at the end of this conversation with this, this guy who's one of the leading Shiite leaders in the Muslim territory in that area, the, the guy turned to, to Ravi Zacharias and he said, well, he said, I think it's about time that we Muslims stop denying the resurrection 
and start asking why the resurrection happened, right? And, of course, Ravi Zacharias was like, can I quote you on this? He's like, absolutely, you can. He said, I even have a newspaper. I want you to write an article. He said, I will not edit it. I won't do anything to it. I want you to put it in there because I'll send it out to all my people, which is incredible. You think about the open doors and what God did in that moment, talking to this person that, that even he, uh, a, a famous religious Muslim leader in our world today, rec- came to a recognition okay, that it's not, if the resurrection happened, but why did it happen? Why did it happen? And in Jesus, we see all the answers. He explains the human condition of man that we see in our world today like nobody else does. He gives us the answer for our problem, our condition. He gives us the answer, the antidote to our problem. He tells us where it is and then he shows us by bodily rising from the grave okay and confirms everything that he is um, the life to come the purpose for making the most of our lives here and now uh, you know I, I think that sometimes and how do we you know bring this back around and what does this mean to us well, like I said at the beginning today, I wanted to appeal to your intellect. I wanted to address the intellectual side of who you are, not the, the emotional side, the heart or the soul or any of those things. I want to appeal to the intellect this morning and talk to you about something to challenge the way that you think so that you can, listen, and maybe today's not enough, but maybe it's enough to kind of whet your appetite, to get you curious and to start looking and reading and studying a little bit more. How do you answer some of these hard questions about life? How do you answer the questions that people have when they grow up and, and, and the young people that they're going to, you know, even your own children, you know, when they grow up and they begin to ask, listen, your kids are going to ask questions. They're going to ask hard questions. And you know what? It shouldn't be go ask the pastor. Why? Why can't you give an answer for your faith? Why can't you answer the hard questions in life? They're going to grow up, and they're going to ask those questions, and if they're not asking you, they're asking somebody else. They're going to ask somebody else, and if they don't ask somebody else, they're going off to college, and somebody's going to give them the answer for you, and you're not going to like that answer. You're not going to like it because we lose a lot of our young people at college these days. We lose a lot. The Christian faith loses a lot of people. Why? Because generally they're not prepared. They're not prepared, and they go into the lion's den, and these people eat them up with thoughts and ideas, okay, that sound rational and reasonable at first, all right, but if you don't take those thoughts and those things and walk them out the way that they should be walked out, okay, then it's, it's really easy to become deceived by, by human philosophy and think that that's the way to live. And I think the other thing is, is that, you know, I think we have to be careful as believers that sometimes, and it's, there's a, a term that is used in the Christian circle, it says the atheist Christian, all right? It's the atheist Christian. It's the person that professes to be Christian but lives like God has no influence in his life. And I think sometimes it's easy to get to that place where I go to church and I do my religious duty, but at the end of the day, God really has no influence on my life. If he tells me to do something, I'm going to tell him I got too busy of a schedule 
But I'm going to tell him all the reasons why I can't do what God wants me to do. And we, we, we can get to this place in our life where uh, we're comfortable with our religious position, okay? But there is no relationship, and there is no walk, and there is no the, the, this place in, in our life where we open ourselves up and give God permission to guide us. What was the prayer that King David prayed? He said, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Search me. When's the last time you told God to search you? God, search me. Search my heart. And if there's any wickedness in me, if there's anything that's not pleasing to you in me, just take it away. Do something. Expose it. Help me to see it so I can eliminate it, so I can remove it, because I don't want things in my life that are displeasing to you. It's just too easy sometimes to get caught up in the formalities of this Christian faith. And we just, we've done this for 100 years, and we'll continue to do this, and it just becomes a formality to us. And then we're not open to God's guidance and his leadership and him uh, poking and prodding around in our life saying, you know what, it's about time you get rid of this in your life. It's about time you change this. It's about time you start stepping up. It's about time you start being a leader. It's about time you start making a difference in your world. It's about time you start leading in a church and doing something for my kingdom. We can become atheist Christians. We say all the right things. We do all the right things. But God really has no place in our life. He has no place to speak and to guide us into who we're supposed to be. Will you stand to your feet this morning?